KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Oh, my goodness, do we have a lot to talk about today on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and we've got a big packed room with some terrific uh, analysts here to uh, go over all the news we have in state, local, and national politics. I'll just say briefly at the top of the show, there's some big developments. I mean, big developments in the impeachment case in Washington, and we are going to get to those in the second half of the show. But we really want to start with also news about what's happening uh, here in the state of Georgia, especially in terms of the 2020 uh, races in various offices. Help me do that. It's Wednesday. That means Greg Bluestein, the political reporter, the lead political reporter for the AJC, is with us. You read him virtually every day on the front page. His byline is there. And also he files for the political insider through the day and night, Bluestein. You never stop. It's a, it's a busy time to be a political reporter here in Georgia. <laughs> if you're watching us on Facebook Live, which, of course, you can do by going to the GPB news page on Facebook, you'll see sitting right across from Greg is Karen Owen. She's a uh, political science professor at West Georgia University. You're well into the semester by now, Karen. Yes, we're past the midpoint. Oh. Midterms. Well, we've got midterms, midterms coming. Over. Oh, they're, they're over, over with. Yes, for us. Lots of relief among students. Uh, in your class. What are you teaching this semester? I'm teaching an introduction to American government, and I'm also teaching a gender and politics course. Uh, Which is an area of expertise for you, we should point out to people. Yes. Um, Also, we should say that you worked on Capitol Hill before uh, becoming a professor at West Georgia. Tell us a little about your, remind our listeners of your experience on the Hill. So I've spent some time working for a Georgia congressman. I was his legislative assistant. You don't want to make. You don't want to say the name because you're afraid that it'll be a problem. Oh no, I don't. <laughs> There's no hiding. Oh, who was it? I work for Congressman Nathan Dill That's or okay. Governor Nathan Dill. Yes. <laughs> Next to you is Leo Smith, a Republican strategist, uh, formerly the uh, outreach director for the state Republican Party, uh, but now a political consultant, independent of uh, the party apparatus. Hi, Leo. Hello, how are you? Do you have, have you already got candidates lined up for the 2020 cycle? No, I've got a couple of candidates, not candidates, I'm sorry. Uh, I will not take a candidate for this cycle because I am working on um, some voting rights infrastructure, some some voting um, infrastructure to help the state mm-hmm. uh, overall, and some other things to help the Republican Party come back to reason. Okay. (laughs) Leo, famously, we mentioned this on the show yesterday because we said you were going to be here. Leo famously parted ways, one of the first Republicans in Georgia to part ways with President Trump a few months back, right, Leo? Come back to reason. Interesting. (laughs) We can be Republican again. Um, we also have next to you, Leo, uh, Stephen Fowler. He's GPB Radio's political uh, reporter. How you doing, Stephen? Doing all right. Trying to get back on the right side of sleeping. Yes. <laughs> you, Greg Bluestein, and our other panelists today, Jeremiah Olney, who is a principal at Paramount Consulting, the political firm that uh, Theron Johnson founded a few years ago. Um and uh, you're here today. You, too, were at the Georgia Democratic uh, State Party dinner last night. I was also the Young Democrats of Georgia after party after the dinner oh. last night, so I'm especially tired. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, wake up, because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, Greg, let's start with the dinner last night. I, what You wrote a long piece that people can read online at AJC.com. But um, just briefly, what stood out for you about the dinner last night? I mean, one, it was a reminder, if anyone needed it, that Stacey Abrams is still the dominant figure in the Georgia <laughs> Democratic Party. She gave a, a speech that kind of thrilled the audience. She gave her a lot of her the same sort of uh, lines of attack she gives her all over the country, but it was, it was a good chance for activists here to hear her say that. Um, and secondly, it was... Um, Another opportunity for Reverend Raphael Warnock to kind of hint that he is um, leaning towards a Senate run. I'm not sure where his mindset is on that, but certainly a lot of people in that room left that thinking that he was 
going to be a yeah. Oh, the there's a lot to dig into there. But uh, before we get to uh, 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 Reverend Warnock, let's talk a little. Uh, Stephen, you got some sound of Stacey Abrams' speech last night, uh, and uh, she had some slightly new messaging for last night's crowd, right, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, we've like, like Red said, there's the same things about you know calling Brian Kemp a cartoon villain governor and things. But you know, in her post defeat days, she's been working on fair fight, but also fair count dealing with the census next year. And she said the Democrats have to take a step beyond uh, trying to win the election and focus on the census as well as another piece of importance. Let's listen to just a little bit of her speech last night. It's not enough for us to fight the next battle. We've got to fight the battle after that, and that's the 2020 census. You see, the Trump administration is doing its level best to erase certain ones of us from the narrative of what is America. Because, you know, if they don't count us, then they think we don't count. Jeremiah, what a fight we could have on our hands watching the census unfold in 2020. Absolutely. I mean, we've already had a fight. We had the huge fight in the yeah. Supreme Court about the citizenship question. And even though it won't end up on the ballot, the damage has still been done. We talked about it breathlessly for months. We didn't know whether or not it would happen. We talked about the consequences of that. And I think when this decision finally came down, there are probably a lot of people who aren't aware that this has been decided already. People like undocumented immigrants and even documented immigrants who are going to be terrified to take part in the census if they think it's going to somehow lead to deportation or retribution. I think it's going to take a big lift on the part of everyone marketing the census to make sure that everyone knows that it is not not going to happen. Yeah, Karen, and we're really not sure yet. I mean, there have been indications from the White House that there may be other efforts by uh, the administration to suppress the census among people they'd rather not be counted. But one way or the other, it is always difficult to count many, many people during a census. It is. And, and this year, particularly coming up in 2020, they're going to be focusing on, you know, getting more people to actually do their accounting through the Internet and not just writing on those uh, letters that come out. So that's one piece is making sure that people are actually going and you know counting themselves online. But also there's a report recently about how the Census Bureau is actually now facing a backlog. They can't get people, workers, in through the system. And if they can't get that moving, it's going to put another strain on us seeing that everyone gets counted. Leo Smith, uh, you know full well that minority communities, uh, Jeremiah already alluded to it, are often a little bit reluctant to respond to the census for fear that they're going to somehow be singled out uh, in, in a negative way. Um, it, and that is not just undocumented immigrants and other Hispanics. There's also concerns about whether African-Americans will get fully counted. That's always a problem, especially African-American men. You know, I don't think that the issue for African-Americans has ever really been taken seriously by the African-American community. You don't see census drives or any type of uh, activism in the black community or the black church, for that matter, in the way that you see voting drives. And so I'm not so sure it really impacts or is in in the uh, periphery of anybody's vision in the black American community as a real issue. Um, I think this is mainly an issue about immigration, illegal, undocumented and other so uh, we're going to watch how that unfolds, but it's interesting. She, she has fair fight action, right, Stephen? That's one of her groups. Right. Uh, fair fight count, which is the one that will specifically fair address. Count. Yeah. Fair count. I'm sorry. Thank you, Greg. So she's all over the map. She's got a lot to do. Yeah, and, and she's, she's really, you know, she's using this as a conversation. Obviously, she's driving the conversation right. around voting rights with fair fight, but with fair count, she's trying to link the two together. Is It's not just about, you know, Democrats can win elections, but if they get drawn into one big mega district after the census, then, you know, it, it's kind of a moot point. All right. Um, Greg, uh, you already mentioned Raphael Warnock there caused a lot of uh, commotion, I think, uh, last night. He gave a pretty powerful speech, I believe. Let's listen to a little of his speech, and then we'll talk about him as a potential candidate. I submit to you that if there was ever a time when we ought to be concerned about the soul of our country, about our covenant with one another, about our commitment to the highest and best values of the human spirit, that time is now. There is an attack on the very soul of our country and all that it represents. The fact that we have someone occupying the White House who doesn't seem to mind, in fact, is actively courting the help of foreign adversaries to rig our election. That's a scandal and a scar on the soul of America. 
You know, Greg, anybody who's been to a, a Sunday service at Ebenezer mm-hmm. Baptist, as my wife and I have done on occasions, knows this is a guy who really knows how to preach, and it sounds like he was in that mode last night. Yeah, there was a time in 2015 where I was uh, tuning into pretty much every Sunday service there because yeah. he was on the verge of yeah. getting in. And it struck me because he was in the ex- exact same room, the exact same stage, the exact same position, speaking to a thousand Democratic donors about the exact same seats for Senate four years ago. But at that point, he was the Democrats' kind of only best hope for that seat because um, he was one of the biggest names in uh, potential candidates in that race. And for a long time, he flirted with uh, a run, and then he, he eventually said he, w- he was not interested in a run. He's flirting with the run now again, but this time there are a, a many, many other potential candidates waiting in the wings. He is not the only potential savior for Democrats running for this race. And they were all, it was interesting, pretty much all of them were in that room too, making it very clear that they're still interested. Are we in assuming race. he'd be running in race number two, the open Johnny the open Isaacson, Isaacson seat? Um, so he is a, a Karen. It, you know, what we've all been saying, is there going to be an African-American Democrat who will come forward and run, you know, following on the heels of what Stacey Abrams was able to accomplish in mobilizing African-American voters in the governor's race. Um, And maybe we're on the verge of that. But the thing about Warnock is his congregation, at least in the past, they did not want him to leave to run for Senate. I wonder how that might change now that African-Americans are kind of worried about what the climate in Washington with President Trump. So I would think that he has a lot to calculate in this decision to run. And one is true from the congregation. Will they support him? And two, if we're going for the second seat, this open seat, then he's going to be running in this jungle primary that does not list the partisanship. So you've got to mobilize, yes, the African-American community behind you, but you've also got to pick up those independents, too. And then can can he reach statewide? Uh, yes, the Atlanta community knows him really well. He does have a base. You know, when I hear that speech, though, I also think about those candidates who are already uh, listed for the Democratic Party running and Senate, the Senate seat one, and he can inspire their messaging. And I wonder if that's part of what we're hearing, too, from him as he's kind of rousing up that interest of we can use this as a messaging. I love that notion, Jeremiah, of, you know, kind of inspiring people who are already in the race, because although we have some pretty strong candidates who have decided to run for seat number one, the David Perdue seat, uh, we're not hearing a lot of kind of inspirational messaging out there. I think that's fair. And I do think it'd be very wasteful for all these Senate candidates in these two races to not capitalize on each other's like name recognition, on their ability to inspire people to come out and vote for them. And especially for Reverend Warnock, those are the, all the calculations he has to make. Plus, he has to do it all again in two years. This is a very short tenure, and I don't fault a lot of Democrats for not wanting to jump in the race immediately, especially when they don't know who they're going to be challenging, because this is a huge investment in their life, running a statewide campaign twice over the course of two years. I mean, they'll basically never stop running for office for the next three years. Gee, they'd be just there. like members of the House. <laughs> and, you know, and raising money. The Democrats have a great case study um, to look at it from, a, from a national perspective with the Donald Trump campaign against all those Republican candidates. We're seeing that kind of feeding frenzy here with Democrat candidates. They've got blessings as numbers and assets, but it also can be a curse because as you pull out all these people, somebody's going to try and make a name for themselves to stand out. Um, And while you see why not positioning like he is, um, then you got Teresa Tomlinson, you know, she's using a a strategy to appeal to um, disenchanted Republicans. And so she's doing an opposite appeal of Warnock in a way. It it makes for an interesting... uh, scenario for the Democrats. It's going to be quite a challenge. I'm sorry. Stephen, what was the mood in the room after Warnock spoke? I mean, what was the buzz? I mean, I would say, you know, there was a lot of energy and intensity and interest in what he had to say. And I think, you know, Stacey Abrams literally wrote a playbook saying, follow this if you want to win elections. And I think, uh, to the points being made, I think if Warnock does not enter into this race, that speech and kind of his messaging is follow this message Mm -hmm. with Stacey Abrams' playbook and this will be successful. So there were a lot of people, there were a lot of... uh, arched eyebrows, maybe from some of the other candidates that were potential candidates in the room, but there were a lot of people really interested in what he was saying. Stacy did, and when she was running for governor, Stacy actually put out several memes and tweets in the campaign saying, get information. It is Stacy's army. Um, uh, so, Greg, uh, Warnock led everybody to the altar. He, he left the bride waiting at the altar in 2016. It'll be fascinating to see if this is the year he finally decides 
to come and take his vows. And it might not be, right? I mean, it, 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 um, he has young kids. Yeah, he's got a, he has a baby. He has a baby. He a, has, yeah. um, and, and as was mentioned, it's not just a 2020 and a 2022 race, but there's a big likelihood as of 2021 runoff. Yeah. So it's going to be a very taxing race, and there are there's a lot of interest. The party's not going to go out and have to recruit a Jim Barksdale this time around. They've got a lot of, a lot of other potential candidates waiting in the wings. And... The National Party is looking to get behind one candidate because the last thing they want is multiple credible candidates in this race that would deprive the party of a chance to win this outright in a, in a jungle uh, special yeah. election. Jeremiah, without talking about all the people who already have expressed either interest or jumped into either race one or two, I guess the only Democrat who's jumped into race two is Matt Lieberman, mm-hmm. who was on the show yesterday. Uh, who else did you see in that room as you looked across the crowd who <laughs> might be thinking, who is out there buttonholing people? I think just about every. I think, kind of honestly, in a year like this, a wide open primary like this, I think thinking back to Reverend Warnock's decision back in 2016, I kind of put into like pre and post Trump categories for people who are thinking of running for office because before it's sort of, you know, it's a career move. It's the thing you do. You can believe in what you're running for. But now it's like it's a mandate. People feel like they have to run for office to do something about this administration and try and do whatever they can to take power back from it. And I think that might be part of Warnock's calculations now, too. All right. While we're talking about the Democrats and I want to move on to in a minute to talk about uh, a brand new possible uh, Kemp. Uh, applicant for the seat. Um, let, let, let's talk about this, ter- st- what I thought, and you can certainly tell me if I'm wrong, this strange story in which Teresa Tomlinson's campaign manager, Kendra Cotton, attacked John Ossoff for exploiting his relationship, the endorsement he got from John Lewis claiming that he was trying to appropriate, essentially, the civil rights movement. for I, I found that to be the most counterproductive attack you could possibly want to launch. What was that all about? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of frustration from their camp that she let boil over um, that, that John Ossoff mentions, promotes, you know, often the fact that he has one of the most prominent, influential Democrats in Georgia on, in his camp. And um, his camp's uh, opinion on this, they're puzzled that she wants to publicize well, that. He's, he's, he's more than happy for right. her to put that out there. Karen, there was a quote from Cotton. Again, her campaign manager, she's African-American, so let's be clear about that. Nevertheless, if this quote had come from President Trump, uh, we people would be here on this show <laughs> claiming, how the heck could he get away with that? Cotton said, and I quote, um, Every, let me be clear, every question should not be answered with, John Lewis was hit by a brick 55 years ago. What is that all about? <laughs> I'm amazed that Tomlinson's letting this happen as yeah. a candidate, right? Yeah, because but she I, knows I, better than that. Yes, and I, I feel like, you know, she has, Tomlinson has strong support and endorsements that have come from some leading African-Americans in this state. And so I feel like this is becoming, Ossoff has strong name recognition. He's got strong fundraising coming in. And it's one way to let your campaign staff kind of go after him a little bit. Uh, Was this probably the best calculation in a move? No. Well, I I don't know. I mean, I think what I said earlier, uh, that it looks like to me, Teresa Tomlinson's trying to distinguish herself. And to make Wait, it... by, by essentially having her campaign manager uh, throw a, 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 a shot across the bow of John Lewis, one of the great civil rights heroes? Teresa Tomlinson now has something in common with Donald Trump. We definitely know Leo is still a Republican. Yes, I am. I mean, it, it, it does reflect a change dynamic in this race. Um, she was the first candidate in the race. She had she had opportunity to you know become the front runner. She really didn't didn't do that. She had a, she had a, she did not have a good third quarter fundraising where she spent uh, more than she 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 uh, she raised. Um, and so I think maybe some of the frustration is boiling over. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know how to characterize that. It's not the first time that, that the campaign manager, Kendra Cotton, has has gone after other candidates. But um, but it is something that uh, puzzled a lot of a lot of Democrats and not just people have taken sides. Leslie Small, the, the a veteran Democratic operative, a former aide to to uh, to John Lewis, said, if I was running, as a candidate, I would I would want the world to know John Lewis backed me. He, yeah. He's 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 the most prominent, um, most well known, one of the most well known Georgia. There's, there's a responsibility that I I'll go ahead and say this with all seriousness. When it comes to cultural appropriation, I, 
trying to steal someone's uh, suffered identity that you know took years of wait, suffering. Wait, to under have. what what do you have that gives evidence that they have tried to steal his cultural suffering? All they've done is said. He supports our campaign. So what Kendra is getting at is that John Ossoff is wearing him like a talisman almost. That he's wearing John Lewis like, look, I've got this black civil rights legend as my endorser. Like, look at my, you know, the whole, that's a a cultural appropriation. He knows nothing about the experience. I think Congressman Lewis is is an adult. If he were unhappy with how John Ossoff was using his endorsement, if he were unhappy with his behavior, he would tell him and that would change. I think if Congressman Lewis still stands behind John Ossoff, he hears his rhetoric. He knows what he's saying. He endorsed him for a reason. I don't think he would have any problem. And if he does, I assume he'll say so with John Alsop talking well, about it's, this endorsement. It's a, it's a really, uh, it, it's, I just found it to be a really off-kilter way of trying to take a shot at your opponent, who clearly right now has got a certain amount of momentum in fundraising and that sort of thing. And not to mention, she's got, Mayor Tomlinson has a, a long list of, of African-American, American, including Andrew Young, A right? lot of them. And who she's promoted, too. So right. it's very... Yeah, uh, it's Stephen, meanwhile, on the other side of this, oh, the Asov campaign really got punked. They failed to secure, <laughs> what, johnossoff.com, and now a Republican group has used that URL and built a fake website that is a pretty strong blow against Asov. Clever on their part incomprehensible that the Asov campaign wouldn't have think wouldn't be thinking about locking down every URL that comes close to his name. Well, you know, domain name trolling is a popular part of campaigns now with the internet being a thing. I don't necessarily think the Asov campaign is worried that johnossoff.com has a fake engagement ring ring pop on sale bringing up some of the uh past issues that were brought up during his run for Congress, but it does, you know, domain names Sometimes uh, some names that were floated, domain names, uh, Karen Handel for Senate.com, Lucy McBath for Senate.com, other things. Sometimes you never know who owns those until right. they come out with something like notjohnossoff.com. Yeah, but Karen, you just don't want to see your name in the newspapers having uh, <laughs> a fake website put up about you by the other party. Well, and I've had several uh, consultants come to my class and teach my students from day one, if you're ever thinking about running for office, you have to own your name in any way across some domain. So I think this was not a calculated play here. And if I, I look today, and his is elect John dot com mm-hmm. and that doesn't even have us often yeah. the the part and so i think he he ran he had a lot of money in that special election six district race he could have known that this was important to own you don't want this in the news right for and i get that it's not a huge steven's right this isn't the worst thing that's going to happen to the asov campaign by a long shot but still greg it's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's a little story. It reminds me last year of um, there was a guy, BrianKemp.com uh, was actually a California, yeah. I think, real estate developer yeah. who was suddenly getting all these uh, yeah. these hits on his website. And for a little while, the Demo- he, it was linking to a Democratic site, and then a, a state, a Republican state representative bought it and gave it, bestowed it to, to the Kemp campaign, and it was a little story. It's, it's one of these kind of... Um, you know, fun little back and forth stories, but I don't think it you know, moves the needle. Uh, we've it happens. All, what's the Mitt Romney Twitter account now? What is the fake Twitter? Anybody remember? <laughs> no, it's, it's 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 really his. No, I know that. I meant the name. fake name that he's using to basically uh, troll. Pierre Delecto. Pierre yeah. Delecto. <laughs> okay, uh, Greg, I know you've got to leave early, so before you do, I want you to start us off on another part of the conversation, and that has to do with um, if we, we talk about Raphael Warnock. Now let's talk for a minute about Chief Justice. Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, Harold Melton, highly respected uh, uh, jurist in Georgia. And you've reported that he quietly met, or not too quietly because you got it in the paper, with uh, Governor Kemp, presumably to talk about whether he got to throw his hat in the ring, his application in the pile for the open U.S. Senate seat. Yeah, more than 500 people have now applied. Um, he's not one of them, but he has met with the governor last week to express his interest big, in potentially big, running. Big thing to point out, African-American jurors. Yep. Go ahead. Um, black chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court was a, an appointee by Sonny Perdue. He was actually Sonny Perdue's executive counsel mm-hmm. for a few years before he was appointed to the state's top co- court. No 
you know, traditional political experience, has never run a contested statewide campaign because he ran unopposed three times since that, that, uh, that he was appointed to the job. Um, his views on a lot of political, a vast range of political issues are not known. Um, he has a conservative track record on, on, on the court, but not much is known about where he stands on some of the biggest debates that, that will shape next year's election or really how he feels about President Trump. Um, and then there's a debate about whether or not he can e- either even um, formally apply, whether or not it's violating judicial canon um, to do that. Um, it's not quite certain whether or not he will apply. I think that if he does apply, that he's getting some sort of assurances that he's you know, on some sort of short list, because uh, otherwise I don't think he'll actually apply. But um, it's giving up a lot, Chief gi- Justice, to the Georgia Supreme Court. It is. Um, uh, Karen, what would the uh, entrance of a of a black uh, uh, candidate on the Republican side of the ledger uh, mean for uh, the race in 2020? So I think one thing we'll have to think about it would be a similar style appointment that South Carolina did in 2013 Mm. when you appointed Tim Scott to the Senate, right? So you had a Republican, African-American. It would be very bold for the Republicans to make this move. And then as far as the contest goes, it would be interesting if Melton is the candidate. He does have a great reputation amongst, you know, a lot of people in Georgia because of his conservative background and how he's been on the court. However, I think Greg makes a strong point there, which is he does not have a record on political issues. And how can he run as a political candidate? Interesting, I looked up, you know, these uncontested races he's had. He's only raising, you know, $80,000 or maybe $45,000. And you're talking about that needs to be raised. Right. You need to raise that in a day. And can he raise, you know, $100,000 in a day? Sure. I'm sure there's a lot within the Republican circles who would be excited to see this because you're trying to expand the Republican base more. But will he be able to capitalize and build a base? Uh, Well, presumably, if he's the pick by Governor Kemp, that automatically means the Republican Party will be there to help. Help him out, but in the long run, he's the one who's got to sit in the room by himself and make the phone calls to possible donors. Yes, and answer, <laughs> and I think too, again, answer those questions on his politics, how he will handle and vote on particular issues as a senator. Leo, do you think someone like that could could clear the field? Could what, I what think most Republicans have never even heard of Harold Melton um, until yesterday. I mean, I knew of him, but he's never been on my radar as a Republican. Um, I think that is interesting to hear conservative, uh, someone being a conservative, but also being a uh, not necessarily being conservative politically. And we don't know his politics. It's kind of but a political job, right? I mean, yeah, but but I know Cassandra Kirks in Fulton County judge. I know her conservative politics. I know most of the judges and I know their conservative politics. I, Harold Melton, I think, is a political loyalist to Purdue. But I don't think that that signs you up as someone that the voting constituents of the Republican Party would be excited about. $80,000 tells a story. Stephen, Stephen, (laughs) you traveled to South Georgia this week. Uh, You had an interview with uh, Governor Kemp. I think you talked to him for 15, 20 minutes. Among other things, you talked about his plans for rural Georgia. And we'll talk about that at some point. But you also asked him uh, what his thinking was currently about the appointment. What did he tell you? Well, he said, you know, the 500 plus people that have applied for the thing, he says, you know, it's a sign of commitment of being transparent to the process so that people know. So to that point, Harold Melton would probably have to apply and it wouldn't be some sort of backroom agreement. But the governor did leave the door open to a non-politically active traditional appointment. He said that he was uh, surprised and pleased to see some of the business leaders that applied and people that didn't. It might be good for Georgia to have somebody who doesn't necessarily have a lot of political experience to best represent the state. But then again, he said it might do just as well to have a politically active person. All right. Well, let's do this. we got to get a break out of the way. I've gone way too long without one. Um, and Tom Faust is going to pull out whatever hair he has left uh, if I don't take one now. I know he just gave me a dirty look, but I've lost all my hair too, Faust. Uh, Greg Bluestein, I know you've get, you have to get out of here. Can we? Are you going to get out during the break? Are you going off to cover a story that we'll read about in the paper tomorrow? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yes. You're not going to say another word about it. It's a secret. It's a super top secret. Okay. He's going to uh, report tomorrow on the venue of the Democratic uh, debate, probably. (laughs) Uh, Which, by the way, before you leave, you and I had a funny phone conversation yesterday. I was going to turn it into a riddle. What is the one thing that people 
who are involved in politics or like our political junkies really care about that no one else in the state cares at all about? And the answer is... The venue of the debate. And honestly, <laughs> I don't care about it either, but everyone is asking me right, about exactly. it. exactly. All right, uh, Greg Bluestein, thank you for being with us uh, today. Uh, go off and do a great story that we'll read about, and I hope at some point uh, on the Insider, maybe tonight in the paper tomorrow. Let's get a break out of the way. That car of yours you no longer need. What to do? Selling it can be a hassle. Consider donating it to support this station. It's easy. Pickup is free. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. And you could even get a tax deduction. Get the process started today. Give us a call to learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. And thanks. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. In the Northwest, loggers and environmentalists are teaming up to find solutions for the growing threat of wildfires. What I find is that people who don't want to collaborate typically throw darts from a distance. They don't get out on the ground, they don't read the science, or they selectively pick science. I'm Audie Cornish, a truce in the timber wars, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven here on GPB or listen live on the GPB apps. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Stephen Fowler, GPB Radio, and uh, Greg Bluestein had to leave at the break. So Jeremiah Olney continues with us, as does Karen Owen and uh, and uh, Leo. Uh, we're still awfully happy, Leo Smith, that you're here with us, too. Uh, all right, Leo, let's start with the president, the f- controversy about the president calling the impeachment inquiry a lynching. It clearly generated enormous anger among Democrats, and there were Republicans who were rather upset about it as well, in part because it contributes to what we've seen as a kind of a trope that is threaded throughout uh, this president's tenure. Well, this is one of those subjects that literally drives me crazy rather than figuratively drives me crazy because figuratively the use of the word lynching um you know i mean is 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 used all the time and is used by anyone to mean anything about you're accusing me of something wrong or you're trying to get me from for wrong reasons which is really what the president was saying and from his perspective um so you know i think that this is again one of those things that is is fun to talk about you know wait i fun to talk mm -hmm. about is an interesting word for, I, I think that right now, yes, I think it's a very popular thing okay. to make news out of a common phrase that most people, even in this room, have probably sat and heard somebody say and not made a big deal about it. Uh, because, yes, it's usually referring to in America uh, literally as figuratively as a black person. But it, the word lynching can be used. Lynch, anybody can be lynched, white, black, whatever. So, you know, th- that's just a fact. That's literally the truth. If it had not been maybe, Karen, for Charlottesville, uh, other examples of the president uh, making, at, at the very least, racially insensitive, if not uh, downright uh, uh, bigoted comments, maybe it wouldn't have gotten the play. I don't know. I think you're right. It's because of other tweets, other comments he has made that this came at a time when it just is seen as this is just not the right place or use. And to follow kind of what Leo said, it's about what this word really means, right? So if you look at the definition, it is to execute without due process of law. It is to, you know, put to death by mob action when there's no legal basis for it, right? So it's outside of the law. Historically, yes, it is tied to our, you know, that the past that we've had with, you know, black men and and across the country and other, you know, African Americans who were hanged and because, you know, of actions that were not tried or, or found to be justified in any way. And again, like Trump's using this in a time after things that have been insightful, he's, you know, created this, you know, animosity somewhat amongst people that, and so using it has this really t- um, negative effect on others to hear it. But then we see that in other impeachment times, yeah. the word has been used. Let, let's, um, thank you for saying that, because I yes. want to f- talk about that. Uh, Jeremiah, let's listen to Joe Biden in 1998. 
It seems to me that the process is being demeaned. And I have great faith in Henry Hyde, but old Henry better get on the job, because unless he figures out how to corral this, no matter what happens, even if the president should be impeached, history is going to question whether or not this was just a partisan lynching or whether or not it was something that, in fact, met the standard, the very high bar that was set by the founders as to what constituted an impeachable offense. So, Jeremiah uh, Henry Hyde, the chair, the Republican chair at the time of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, and uh, here we have Joe Biden using that language. But before I give you the the stage on this, let's also listen to two African-American Democrats in 1998, Danny Davis, Chicago uh, congressman, and Charles Rangel of New York. Let's listen to what they said. So I will not vote for this nightmare before Christmas. I will not vote for this lynching in the people's house. I will vote against these resolutions. And for those of you who say that this isn't about sex, I agree with you. This is about getting rid of the president of the United States. The whole idea is a lynch mob mentality that says this man has to go. How do we deal with this, Jeremiah? I mean, I think, to be fair, I think some of those comments from the Democratic congressman are a little more refined. Uh, I think that message is a little bit better worded than Trump basically making himself this persecuted figure. It's not like I don't know that Bill Clinton came out and said, I'm being lynched, essentially, which is what Trump has done. I mean, this is the president of the United States. This is I know he's devalued the office somewhat, but it still matters. And I think for the president, more than maybe anyone else in the country, it's very important to choose what words you use and to be aware of the historical context of those words. And I think because of his past comments, because he is completely devoid of historical knowledge of pretty much anything. I don't think he realizes the weight that those words mean, especially Leo, in this context. I, I apologize. Leo, do you, do you hear, hear what Jeremiah is saying? But then also Karen putting it into this context where we've had a steady stream of uh, remarks from the president that raise questions about whether he is insensitive about uh, racial issues, if not worse. Sure. It's, fa- it's fair game to use past behavior and comments to um, give you um, analysis of a current present statement. So that's fair. But, you know, I mean, in the same way that, again, President presidential candidate Joe Biden was challenged by Kamala Harris on a lots of his past votes, his past behaviors. Democrats want to pivot and say, no, judge Joe Biden on who he is today. But you can't do it both ways. You can't say that you're going to judge Donald Trump on his past and, and that sort of thing, or even his presence, but still not realize that Democrats, liberals, all people do these a lot of these same things and we go home to dinner with them. I, I was sorry. I was just going to say that, you know, I teach my students all the time that words matter picking up on what Jeremiah said, context matters and how we use them. So we throw around words all the time like conservative, liberal, progressive. Do we know what they really, truly mean? So if you put the idea of like lynching, do you know what it means? Do you understand the historical context of it? Who is the victim? Why is it being said? And even other politicians who've referenced things like concentration camps or others, when you say things like this, do you know what they mean in the historical context? And are you making a comparison to gain something or are you trying to make a comparison to show that there is a real problem and issue here? I would like to jump on the Joe Biden, Donald Trump comparison here because you're right. Kamala Harris has called him out for votes he's taken 20 years ago, things he's done, bills he's passed. But those things are 20 years ago. And since then, he has built a new record. He's continued to build his record and shown that that's not the person he is anymore. Whereas Donald Trump's past is last week. It's two weeks ago. This is current policy that he's doing that reinforces this messaging that he's using. You know what it tells me, Leo, and then we'll move on to another subject. Uh, that is, with all things that involve race, it's complicated. Sure. It's complicated. Um, and and I but so, you know, we'll leave it at that. But but clearly, Leo, you you probably acknowledge that at a time when the president is already really reeling from all of the uh, accusations in the impeachment inquiry, the reports that are coming out in the newspaper, some of his other remarks, most recently, the Syrian uh, decision, it didn't help him. To no, make no. this comment I, I, right I now, acknowledge that. it's another, it's another, it, it just opens even wider that tiny crack that may be starting to grow in the Republican Party in terms of their support for him. Public decorum or the lack of public decorum is a sword that Republican activists and Republican base is willing to fall on 
in their mind to save America. Yeah. And, well. and, and so, so, so for Donald Trump to say things that are, they're not comfortable with or that may create a firestone amongst the media or Democrat opposition, um, that's one thing. But to save America, they're willing to, to deal with the discomfort. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And then when we come back, we got new polling on impeachment. Uh, and we've got a huge news story developing on Capitol Hill today. As I said, I wanted to hold impeachment until later in the show. But you have a group of Republicans, almost two dozen, who have stormed the skiff where the three uh, committees investigating impeachment were meeting in, in this secured location. And uh, Tom Faust, do we know if they're still there? They're, this has been an ongoing story. They're still there, I think. Uh, yeah, Tom, Tom Faust says they're still there. Let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about that and a lot more. My name is Dana Brown. I am the program manager at the Georgia Adoption Reunion Registry. Our goal is to help persons impacted by adoption experience healthy reconnections to impact healthy well-being. We underwrite with GPB because of your extensive listening audience that covers the state of Georgia. It's an effective way to get the word out about what we do across the state of Georgia. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, as concerns rise about the possible resurgence of ISIS, we'll get a first-hand account of the 2017 battle to drive the terrorist group from Mosul, Iraq's second-largest city. Our guest will be journalist James Verini, author of the new book, They Will Have to Die Now, Mosul and the Fall of the Caliphate. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Um, let me start off this conversation by saying that it was just a day before yesterday that in a cabinet meeting, or it may have been yesterday, I lose track of the time when it comes to the impeachment uh, uh, issues, uh, President Trump uh, told Republicans they were not fighting hard enough uh, for him against impeachment. And a day later, uh, we have a couple of developments. First of all, Doug Collins is back in the mix. He uh, released a video on his Twitter account. Let's just listen to a little of it. This is not about a phone call to Ukraine. It's about a Democratic majority whose dislike and hatred for this president has boiled over since the minute he was elected. It's not America to simply want to impeach somebody that you don't like. An impeachment inquiry is a serious step for a serious body. Now, many times people may not look to Congress as a serious body, and we've earned our fair share of criticism. But when it comes to overturning the will of the people, it is something we must take seriously. Of course, uh, Doug Collins, as, as the ranking member on judiciary, has been outspoken in defense of the president as well, but seems to be responding to the president saying, please get tougher Republicans. But here's the bigger story today, Karen. We now have uh, more than 20 Republican members of the House who ha essentially uh, barged in to the skiff, the sensitive, I wrote it down, the sensitive compartmented information facility, a secure location uh, where uh, people do uh, work that, that requires high security. Uh, they barged in. They are still in that room. There was a, uh, a witness, Linda Cooper, expected to testify. Adam Schiff pulled her out of the room. Tom Faust says, the Republicans have now ordered pizza and they're refusing to leave because they say they want more transparency. Now, I want to get you in, but before I do, this is sort of a fact check on yesterday's show when we talked about uh, these, these meetings, these hearings that are going on behind closed doors. It's important for us to say Republican members of Congress of these three committees are in those hearings. This isn't Democrats who are alone getting to question witnesses. The Republicans get to do it too, and they can emerge from those meetings, and they too, as they have done, can make statements about what they've heard. All that said, this seems like a horrendous escalation uh, of this whole process. If you have Republicans who are essentially refusing to leave a secured room and let a hearing unfold, I've got to say it's scary to me. And you wonder what their motives are, knowing that they have colleagues 
who are able to be in those rooms right. in those rooms and asking questions. Yes, perhaps it plays back well in their district that they're showing that they have the president's back. Well, in this two way. of those congressmen are Buddy Carter uh, and uh, Jody Heiss. So go ahead. But yet, yeah, so what motivates them to feel like they need to be in this presence? Do they not feel that the process is allowing all members of Congress to be a part of it? And that they're not getting the right information from their own House leadership, from the Republican standpoint. So it, it draws a lot of questioning as but it's to a why, war. I mean, why the, the are war. they doing this and, and what messaging is the media going to pick up to help, you know, to read this narrative moving forward? The war is engaged, Jeremiah. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think it'd be... It, there could be an argument made that this is obstruction of justice on the part of these Republican lawmakers. Well, they also went in with their cell phones and were tweeting yes. from inside the skiff, which you are not allowed to, you're not allowed to take a cell phone into the skiff. Right. So there are further problems there. But go ahead. I was hearing that apparently they've been making some people were tweeting in this room. And yeah. since they've said, oh, it's the aides doing the tweeting. It's not us because I want to make it clear that they don't have their cell phones in the secured room. But this is and not just childish. It's a stupid ploy. Bringing those things into a secured room is ill thought out, much like the whole thing. And I think after yesterday's testimony, they are now terrified of what these other people have to say. And Jay Bookman tweeted a very, I think, relevant uh, fact this morning is Republicans held 103 interviews on Benghazi. And 102 of those were closed doors. Trey Gowdy's hearings on Benghazi were all held, with the exception of one, behind closed doors. Exactly. And that's important to point out. And Democrats never stormed any of those meetings, as far as I know. Leo, is this in the long run going to help Republicans in their fight to uh, cast doubts on the process of impeachment here? I think that they're in the battle that they're in and they're not looking down the road. I think they're supporting the president because he is the Republican um, head and he is the president of the United States. They feel that what they're doing is patriotic and that, that, that the president is being unfairly attacked and that this is a Democrat strategy. So they're protesting. I think also, too, they know that the president and primaries against his fellow Republicans picked other winners. Yeah. And so they don't want to be on his bad side. You know, interesting enough, I was thinking as you were mentioning the Benghazi, when we look historically at Congress, it's the play between majority minority, yeah. right? Which party controls the proceedings at the time, which one's opening it up and who's the minority and trying to exert power to get the power back in the chamber. That's right. right. So I, I, that's right. I think right. you have to always keep that in play. I, I do parties. think, though, Jeremiah, and even The Atlantic, which is a pretty liberal uh, mm -hmm. publication, uh, ha, uh, posted an article yesterday or today. Uh, asking whether or not Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi were not, in fact, creating problems for themselves by not starting to open up these hearings so the public could see what's going on. They have given Republicans a real weapon to use against them, mm -hmm. even though, as we've said, yes, of course, Republicans are sitting in these hearings and getting to ask questions that try to knock down whatever the witness is saying to the Democrats in their questioning. That's the thing. I don't think there's any way in terms of Republican pushback and Republican media, there's no way Democrats can win. If they're doing it in secret, then they're holding these secretive basement meetings where they won't tell the American public what's going on. If they do it all in the open, they're going to say, oh, they're already trying to persecute the president, trying to prosecute the president without due process. This is due process to get a little back. This is not a lynching. This is the process framed by the founders of this country to say, here's how you deal with a potentially corrupt president. Everything we've seen so far indicates that this is a corrupt president. What's interesting about this, uh, Karen, because you teach an introduction to government class, is the difference between the the process underway with, with Trump and what we had with both Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton is that in both of those cases, Congress started with reports from special prosecutors. Archibald Cox had been, of course, investigating President Nixon and all of the Watergate-related uh, problems. Um, and then also we had the special prosecutor looking at Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, and all that. So what Adam Schiff and his counterparts on the other committee chairs, uh, Gerald Nadler, I guess, and government relations, I'm not, I don't even remember now who's acting as chair uh, at this point, but um, they're starting from scratch. They are doing the initial investigation that the special prosecutors would have done in those previous uh, impeachments. Right. And then also understanding that in those situations, 
especially with Nixon, my understanding. I was not alive then. I'm sorry to admit. <laughs> Go ahead, rub <laughs> but, it in. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. But at that point, too, right, like it had become such an intrigue amongst the body, right, that you had bipartisan support, even though you didn't have some Republicans standing up for it. You did have some movement. And again, I think here you're right. The House can, like the congressional members are doing the work that a prosecutor were doing. So many of these are depositions, like taking a deposition and understanding what the witnesses have to start and that the idea came from a whistleblower. And so how do you move that process along? And then also, again, we have to remember the context of 2019, right? We are so polarized compared to what we were yeah. 40 years ago and that we're going to move to those partisan camps. And so members of Congress are already there and they're going to fight in those partisan ways. I want to make something clear. And I just make sure, I'm a Professor, are we in the middle of a impeachment investigation? So they have it as the inquiry. That's correct. And that, that's really so, important because it gets thrown around a lot. And I think it confuses the public. The reason Republicans are saying that this is not a due process hearing is because the, the Democrats have had a long opportunity to start impeachment investigation. Mm-hmm. And they have not. It has not happened. That's important to know. Well, it, 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 yes, it is. I mean, there again, Jeremiah, is an example of where, you know, Pelosi in her effort to protect her members has not called for a, a vote of the full House Mm-hmm. on whether to launch what Leo calls an impeachment investigation. It, it does, in fact, give Republicans a little more ammunition to use against the Democrats. Pelosi calculated that it would nevertheless be best <laughs> uh, to not actually have a formal vote. Nevertheless, one of the things it seems to me that Republicans are taking advantages of is the sort of thing that Karen teaches in her classes, how the, the system works in this country. Uh, an impe- the House is fully empowered to launch an investigation, bring charges against the president, send it to the Senate if they so choose, where there will be a full trial where both parties, both Democrats and Republicans, will be fully represented. Of course, yeah. I mean, no one is being locked out of this process. There is full representation from every party. Everyone wants a stake in this, whether they're in the meetings, whether they're doing public comments. They will all eventually have the opportunity to vote on this, all 435 House members, all 100 senators. Well, well, eventually, how long? Two years ago, eventually? Two years later, eventually? When, when is the, when's your deadline for impeachment so investigation? We've had three years to allow all of his crimes and impeachable offenses to pile up because Republicans refused to hold him accountable for two years. The Democrats want him to be publicly judged. That's all they're doing, muddying the water. Karen? I was just going to say, this is very complicated in the idea of the process piece, right? So I have students, you probably know friends, who couldn't tell you that really the process of impeachment is both chambers of the U.S. Congress have to be involved. Articles have to come from the House. That trial has to take place in the Senate. And your chief justice is the one who presides over the trial in that Senate. Most of my students don't understand that because they haven't they just don't remember from their course of American government. So I think it's hard for either party right now to explain process procedures sometimes to Americans to have them understand. But going, you know, recently today, what the poll saying that more Americans are interested in actually, you know, approving of this impeachment. Yeah, Quinnipiac just released a new poll this morning that said that 55 percent of the people approve of the inquiry. Uh, Of course, it's heavily weighted toward. Uh, Democrats uh, rather than Republicans. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, clearly the needle is moving in all of the polling we're seeing. We're just about out of time. I would just make this point, and that is uh, Democrats w- had a very hard time figuring out, Jeremiah, how to message around the Mueller report. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that perhaps that, that Pelosi, especially with his protest today, is in a very difficult position where she's going to have to think about how they're communicating to the American people about the way they're doing the process. Their answer so far has been that's all Republicans can focus on is process because the facts are indicting of the president. So we're going to watch that play out. Right. There's the old adage, if you're explaining, you're losing, and that's what Republicans are doing. Very nicely done, Jeremiah. (laughs) Ten seconds right on the button. We're ready to get out of here for today. Make way for Terry Gross, Jeremiah Olney, uh, Leo Smith, Karen Owen. Thank you so much for being with us today for Political Rewind. We're off tomorrow, but we're back Friday with another show. And who knows what will have happened by then. Take care, everybody.